0: think about the sacrifice that, um, that that Jesus made for us and we are we are naturally drawn to the thing that kind of gets our attention and what gets our attention is is this innocent man hanging on a cross um, what gets our attention is you know how cruel the soldiers were and the, the religious leaders were and and how unjust and unfair and, and how he, he accepted it and he took it and he did it with, without complaint. And we're drawn to that and it's a very powerful image and we get in our minds that that is a great sacrifice and it is a great sacrifice. It is a great image of, the, of this sacrifice of, of this man this great teacher, this great leader, then being tortured and killed unjustly. And we kind of get it. We, we, we kind of get that it was for our sin and the sins of the world, and, and that's where our focus is. And we've sung about that, and we, we've read about it from scripture. But I think we sometimes forget, we sometimes forget, just like at Christmas, we forget that the baby in the manger is going to go to a cross. Sometimes we forget that the Savior on the cross began not in a manger, but in eternity past. And I want to read to you this scripture. If you have your Bibles, you can read along. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, When we come to this time of the you know, Passion Week, I think not the larger society's attitude towards Passion Week, I think a lot of the churches and a lot of Christians' attitude towards Passion Week often reflects something that I think is wrong with our modern Christianity. That we can get very excited, very excited about Christmas. And we can even get really excited about Easter. But things like Good Friday are kind of an inconvenience. I mean, it's great if you work for the government or you're in school, you get an extra day off. Still not sure how that gets swung because, you know, it's technically a religious holiday. But, you know, it's nice. But we don't take that day off to say, okay, now I'm freed up so I can go to a, you know, Good Friday service. It's just one of those things we, I don't know if we just take it for granted. We don't really understand. Or we don't want to revisit it. I think so much of what's in some ways attracted people to Christianity but it's also at the same time weakened Christianity, is Christianity has become so much about making you feel better about yourself. That yes, you have sin and you have guilt and Jesus can take that away and he can make you feel better about yourself. You might feel hopeless, you might feel like you don't have purpose, or you might feel you have so many troubles in your life and Jesus can make you feel better about yourself. And that's a very attractive message We know that when Jesus was walking this earth, that when people saw Jesus heal people, they they wanted to be around him. When Jesus spoke like a revolutionary, they wanted to be around him because they thought he was going to make their lives better. They thought he was going to take away their problems. And there's there's an attraction to that. But I think when we come to something like the Good Friday service, where the focus isn't on making you better. It's not on giving you a better life, but it's actually focusing on the whole problem that had to be dealt with, and the great price for which it was dealt, and and the problem was at least in some ways resolved. We don't really have time for that. I can't walk away from that service feeling better about myself. I can't walk away from that service feeling like I have more hope. And so I'll wait till Easter. I'll wait till Christmas. But I don't want to come somewhere where I have to confront the ugliness of this world. And this passage that we're looking at, this passage reminds us It reminds us that that the price that was paid was so much more than we can imagine. Again, we think the price is the blood, and we think the price is the suffering, and yes, that's part of it. I'm not going to tell you it's not. But when we read this scripture, we see that there's something more. We see that it says there that, that Christ Jesus though he was in the form of God Paul will in other places be more explicit he'll just tell you he's God that though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself emptied himself you see long before this passion week Long before Jesus walked this earth, at some point, maybe not even in time, the Son of God, the Son of God began to suffer for you. But make no mistake, the Passion Week, it's, it is the culmination of it. That's not my point. But it's not all of it. The Passion Week does represent this physical and emotional and even spiritual suffering that Jesus will face. But it's not all of it. Christ's suffering began before the cross. The sacrifice was much more than what we see on the cross. It says he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. This is telling us, this is telling us that, that again, in this time and eternity past, that even before his birth, even before what we call the incarnation, when the word became flesh, Christ, the Son of God, who was God in every sense of the word God, glorious, majestic, omniscient, perfect love, that this Son of God was in some ways willing to shroud his godliness. Not make it go away. We don't believe that the Son of God ever stopped being God. But he allowed it to be veiled. He allowed it to be shrouded in some way. And this is the problem for us. Because I'm pretty sure none of you have ever been God. If you have, let me know probably need to get some counseling. I mean, I might need counseling from you if you actually are God. Um, If you're not, you might need counseling. We have no idea what it's like to go from being the eternal Son of God in perfect community with the Father, Son, and Spirit, and then to become flesh. We don't know what that's like. There's no way. We can't imagine it. It's one of the reasons I think the Bible doesn't emphasize it more. It says that it happened. You know, John writes about it in his gospel. Paul's writing about it here in Philippians. The church believed it. What I'm reading to you from Philippians chapter 2 was thought to be a song or um, a, a recitation that the church, that the church um, recited in, in whenever they met or they sang together. So this means it was, it was deeply held. It wasn't just Paul's innovation. Paul's just quoting from it. Church believed it. But it's hard because we cannot really imagine what that's like. We cannot imagine what it's like to be willing to give that up. I could try to give you analogies, and they would all fall woefully short. Woefully short. You know, I, I could tell you, you know, um, you know, if I was playing basketball with LeBron James, and LeBron James made it like he's not, um, he's not really LeBron James, and he just wants to, you know, play, then he could hide his greatness. It's still not the same thing. It's not even close. We can't imagine it. But we need to be aware of it. We need to be aware that the Son of God did not just come down and become flesh and become flesh in the sense of what we would think is the best. What we would think is the best is he would be awesome. He would... He would. He would be the most beautiful. He would be the strongest. That he would be the most successful in our eyes of what success is. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't just become flesh, which is a big enough thing to go from Son of God to God veiled in flesh but it's the kind of flesh that he took on. He didn't even pick, like, even at that time, he didn't even pick the the greatest ethnicity. He didn't pick the ones that had been most successful, most powerful in the world's eyes. Oh, you know, Israel had, had a moment between King David and King Solomon when they kind of dominated the ancient Near East. They had a moment in history But you know what? The Egyptians had been around for thousands of years. I mean, heck, he could have gone over to China. China had had an an empire for thousands of years. Why not there? Why not the Greeks? Why not the Romans? Why would he pick a conquered people? We can't imagine it. It doesn't make sense to us. But we have to think about it. We have to realize that that the price, the sacrifice, the suffering is so much more than we could ever imagine. And it tells us, rather than be the most powerful, rather than, you know, choose the, you know, the, 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 ethnicity or the or the empire that was that was so great it tells us in this passage that he took the form of a servant and it does something there it puts in there something that that we so resist even among um, Christians we we don't like this word because we think this word means that somehow you're inferior, and we don't like it, and certainly our society at large more and more doesn't like this word, and it's the word obedient, obedient. You know, Eric's been doing a, um, he's been doing a study on worldviews, and And one of the surveys that he he had was that, you know, mentioned before that that most Christians in America, their their God that they believe in is an undemanding God. You know what undemanding God means? It means a God you don't have to obey because he never asks you to. God is more like, he's more like um, the firefighter or the paramedic. He's just sitting somewhere waiting for your 911 when you need him. But he's not going to come and tell you what to do. He's undemanding. But in this passage, what we find in this passage is is obedience is, is shown to not just be a human thing. It's not inferior to be obedient. In fact, it is the Son of God who's obedient. The Son of God. It is in fact divine to obey. It is not a sign of inferiority. And we, again, we struggle with this. But for the Son of God, it's, it's not a problem. Because the one he's obeying is his father, and the obedience, and not just the obedience, but also the direction that's given to the son, it's all done in perfect love. Since he becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and so we see this this suffering that takes place. And we see that, that the sacrifice began when the Son of God would, would become incarnate. And even before he becomes incarnate, we mix, when, when, the, when the decision, when the plan is made to be incarnate. But there's another thing that I think we, we should think about when we think about the suffering and the sacrifice And we find it in in Romans chapter 1, that in some ways, the suffering of Christ, because remember, Christ, he's the Son of God incarnate. He knows what God knows, because he is God. The suffering began when humanity rejected God. I'm not going to go unpack Romans chapter 1, but if you go back and read Romans chapter 1 from verse 18 forward, what it tells us is that God created the world and when he created, he made it evident that he is the God who created. He made it evident that he is the God who provides. He made it evident that he is the God who loves. He made that evident. And humanity rejected him. And it's, its I guess, in some ways, the worst kind of rejection. I'm not sure any rejection is good, but I think this one is worse because, because if, you know, some of you, this may have been a long time ago, but if you were in those days of courting, you know, you liked someone else, they liked you, you kind of were going out for a little while and if the person said, you know what, I think we should end this, but I just wanna tell you, it's just because I don't think I ever want to be with anyone ever. It's not you, it's just, I've decided, I just wanna live life by myself. It would hurt, but you know, you'd be okay. But if someone, if instead the person says, oh, I rejected you because I chose someone else, or I rejected you because I'm going to choose someone else and the one I'm going to choose is nothing like you. A little more painful, a little more hurtful. That's what humanity does. That Romans 1 passage says, not only do they reject God, not only do they they say that, oh, we're not going to acknowledge this God who's, who's obvious, we're going to make our own gods. And our own gods are nothing like this God. They're not rejecting the need for God but they're rejecting this particular God. They're saying, you. We like the idea of God, we just don't like the idea of you. And that's a much deeper rejection. It's a personal rejection. It's something that I think we forget as Christians when we think about sin, and we think of sin as just, as just laws or rules that God made, and God thought they were good ideas. And what we don't realize is that, is that, no, these aren't just rules or that God thinks are good ideas, that they're expressions of who he is. And when you reject his rules, you're rejecting him personally. When he does, when he says, don't murder, it's not because he's murderous, it's because he's not murderous and when you when you when you murder it's not that you're just breaking a rule you're breaking his heart you're 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 personally rejecting personally offending god Oh, God's not like us. He doesn't get personally offended and then go to his room and put on his headphones and cry while he listens to his favorite music or his sad music. No, he doesn't do that. But I think we need to understand that sin is a personal offense against God. It is not simply a legal offense. And so... When we think about the suffering of Christ, I don't want us to lose the image of the tortured man hanging on the cross, dying for our sins. That gets us, that gets us. And I think the reason we have that image that, that happened in history and recorded for us in scripture and passed down through generations is because it is a powerful image and because it kind of gets us at that kind of base level but I think we need to think more than just there. I think we need to understand more about how the Son of God would even take on flesh, and not just any flesh, but the flesh of peasants, of a conquered people, and that he would live not as some powerful, noble, rich leader that all the rest of the world would look at as successful, but he, he, he lives as a servant and he dies as a criminal. We need to see all of that. And we need to see that, that our sin, our sin is, is much more than just the breaking of rules. So from almighty, all-loving God, to the one who is rejected by his own creation. The Son of God who becomes incarnate only to be rejected by his own people. So from a rejected God, the Son of God becomes like us. From the God-man, which who would be amazing to think God in human flesh. He's a servant. And from servant to sacrifice. This is the great sacrifice. This is the depth with which we need to think on it. As we come to this time of reflection, I want us to think more. And if you're just at the place where your focus on what it costs Christ is the image of the cross, stay there. But if you think more on what it costs, think more. Think more on why the sacrifice had to be made. My role, your role, our role in creating the situation where a sacrifice had to be made. Think on how this should make us feel. And finally, think on how then shall we live? You know, what makes something a really good thing in church, a good practice, what makes it go from that to empty ritual is that last question. How then shall we live? You see, if you are baptized or if we have people baptized and we go, that's nice, that's good, and then nothing changes. Nothing changes about person who's baptized, nothing changes about our church. It's becoming an empty ritual. If we have Lord's Supper, where we remember what Christ did for us, and we remember our salvation, but we also remember and celebrate the unity that we have in Christ, if after the Lord's Supper, all we are is a little less hungry, because those wafers aren't very big, a little less thirsty, because there's not enough juice in that cup, if that's all that we are, it's a ritual. And if we come to a Good Friday service and we, we, we're brought to the foot of the cross and we think on these things, but our lives are still the same, it's just a ritual. How then shall we live And by the way, what I mean by that is not how then shall we live in some kind of abstract future. I mean how then shall we live as soon as we walk out the door, as soon as we go to the next thing we're doing today. How then shall we live? The only reason you can possibly say nothing should change is if you are already the perfect image of Jesus Christ. If not, how then shall we live in the very next moment of our lives?